Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 109, and you thought Caracalla was cruel. Justin II's reign was at an end. Grateful to be released from his burdensome responsibilities, he withdrew into the background and let the new Caesar, Tiberius Constantine, and the Empress Sophia rule jointly. This new power duo did not get off to a good start. Sophia kept the keys to the treasury and would not let Tiberius have any money and she would not even let his wife or daughters into the palace. Justin II lived in a comfortable retirement for the last four years of his life. He was less tormented now he didn't have the pressure of ruling and his last four years were more peaceful for him and a lot less mad. He died on the 5th of October 578, aged 58, having reigned, sometimes in theory, for about 13 years. As soon as Justin was buried, Tiberius Constantine dispensed with the services of the former empress. Sophia probably regretted her former foolish behaviour. The new emperor had Sophia put under arrest in her house and she subsequently caused him no more trouble. Tiberius Constantine was outstandingly popular with his people. He was very generous and kept cutting taxes and giving away money. Specifically, he removed the war taxes levied on wine and bread by Justinian for his expansionist conquests. During his time as regent for Justin, he'd fought against the Lombards, and during this campaign Tiberius allied himself with King Schildebert II, King of the Franks. These former barbarians were becoming a powerful force in the former Western Empire, and in only a couple of hundred years would be putting forward a rival Roman emperor to be crowned by the Pope. Now, though, they aided the emperor. Sadly, Tiberius had to agree a quick and expensive peace with the Lombards when, in 576, the Persians invaded Armenia. Cosros had initial success against the empire, capturing the cities of Sebastia and Melitene. The imperial commander of the eastern armies was eventually able to force the Persian army to retreat. In the following summer, the Persians invaded again and won the battle. Tiberius then appointed the current Count of the Excubitors, a man with a very un-Roman name of Morris, as commander in the east and sent more troops. In 578, the Persians invaded imperial territory in Mesopotamia. In retaliation, Morris invaded Persian territory and captured the cities of Aphimon and Singara. Tiberius obviously decided this man was of high calibre and would make a fine successor. After all, the emperor had daughters but no sons. He needed to think about the succession. He married one of his daughters to his military commander. While the army was busy in the east, the Avars invaded again, this time accompanied by the Slavs. Tiberius was forced to give them the city of Sirmium and pay even more money to make them go away. In 582, Tiberius Constantine became gravely ill. On August the 13th, he crowned his successor as Augustus, and on the next day he died, aged 62, having reigned for four years, although he was actually in charge for eight. His last words were said to be spoken to Morris, his designated successor. Let my sovereignty be delivered to thee with this girl. Be happy in the use of it, mindful always to love equity and justice, he said, apparently. Tiberius Constantine didn't reign for long, and there were no momentous events which happened during his reign. He is, though, very notable for one fact. Despite the fact he came from Thrace, and from an area where Latin was still spoken widely, he was probably the first Roman emperor, or Byzantine emperor, who was a native Greek speaker. The tide of language had turned. Latin would die out, and Greek would become the language of Rome. Morris was certainly a native Greek speaker. Flavius Mauritius Tiberius had been born in 539 in Cappadocia. Little is known about his early life, but he became secretary to the commander of the imperial bodyguard. 
This happened to be Tiberius, and the two men got along well. So well, in fact, that Tiberius Constantine appointed Morris as Count of the Excubitors, Imperial Bodyguard Commander, and then, in 577, as Magister Militum of the Eastern Army. This was a bit surprising, as Morris had no military experience. He proved, though, to be a very good general, and won some major battles against the Persians and the Avars. On becoming Emperor, Morris had to carry on fighting against Persia. In 586, his troops defeated the Persians at Dara. Despite a serious mutiny in 588, the army managed to continue the war. Old King Cosros of the Persians had died in 579. In 590, Prince Cosros and the Persian commander Baram Chobin overthrew King Hormis IV. Baram Chobin claimed the throne for himself and defeated Prince Cosros, who fled to the Roman court. Although the Senate advised against it, Morris helped Cosros to regain his throne with an army of 35,000 men. In 591, the combined Roman-Persian army defeated Baram Chobin's forces near Ganzak at the Battle of Blarathon. The victory was decisive. Morris had finally brought the war to a successful end and Cosros II became king of Persia. Soon Cosros married Morris's eldest daughter Miriam and was probably adopted by the emperor. Cosros rewarded Morris by giving the empire western Armenia, including some large cities. One of these cities was Yerevan, the capital of Armenia today. Morris's treaty with his new son-in-law brought a new peace to the east, which included more eastern territory than ever before, and was much cheaper. The west was not looking so good. Morris changed the way the western provinces were governed. He organised the territory into two regions called exarchates, the Exarchate of Carthage for Africa and the Exarchate of Ravenna for Italy, and appointed two military commanders called Exarchs to run them. Having taken care of this, he began to plan to take on the Avars and the Slavs and throw them out of Illyricum. The Empire's strength was back. After the difficult reign of Justin II, a new general had begun to fight back and, since becoming Emperor, had put the Persians right back in their place. The Emperor Morris was an energetic leader and a good commander of men. Having defeated the Persians, he could now look west and deal with the Slavs and the Avars. The Slavs, having pillaged the Balkans for decades, probably began settling the land from the 580s onward. The Avars, as we have heard, took the strategically important town of Sirmium in 582, using it as a base of operations against several badly defended forts along the Danube. In 584, the Slavs threatened the capital, and in 586, the Avars besieged Thessalonica. Then the ambitious Slavs went as far as the Peloponnese in what is now southern Greece. In 591, Morris launched the first of many campaigns against the barbarians, at last with a good chance of turning the tide. In 592, the imperial army fought back and retook Singidunum from the Avars. The commander, Priscus, then defeated the Slavs, Avars and Gepids south of the Danube in 593, and later the same year he arrived north of the Danube. This was the first time in over 200 years that imperial troops had crossed the Great River to fight a battle. In 594, Morris replaced Priscus with his younger brother Peter, who didn't do too well to start with, but he learned fast and soon scored some great victories. Priscus, now in command of another army further upstream, defeated the Avars again in 595, and by 598 a treaty had been signed with the Avar leader Bayan I, only to be deliberately broken a bit later by the Empire, so the army could launch revenge campaigns inside the Avar's homeland. In 599 and 601, the imperial forces wreaked havoc amongst the Avars and Gepids, and in 602, 
the Slavs suffered a crushing defeat north of the Danube. The Imperial Army was now, at last, able to defend the ancient border along the Danube River. It was a great victory for the Emperor and his troops. Pretty soon, Morris was making plans for resettling devastated areas in the Balkans with Armenians. During all of his successful military campaigning, Morris found time to write an important book. He produced a huge military instruction manual called the Strategicon in 12 books in which he made use of his fighting experiences. The 11th book is very interesting, as it describes the enemy barbarians, including the Franks, Lombards, Avars, Turks and Slavs. Now, you'd think all this victory stuff would have made Morris a well-loved man. And for a while that was true. The Empire was safer and more secure than it had been for years. Morris, though, became less popular during the later years of his reign for two main reasons. He fell out badly with the Pope in Rome, and he was very, very stingy with the cash. In Constantinople, the leader of the church was called the Patriarch. Traditionally, the Pope in Rome was the most important Christian leader in the world, but the Patriarch of Constantinople, a man called John, declared that he was now preeminent. The Pope at the time is known to history as Gregory the Great. So there's obviously a problem. Nobody who ends up being known as the Great is likely to have let himself be pushed around. Gregory sent two letters to Morris, saying that John had better stop this right now, but Morris quite understandably supported his patriarch. From that day on, Gregory made a nuisance of himself quite often, interfering and making it difficult for Morris to run his empire in the way he wanted it. The second problem, though, was more important. Morris didn't like spending money at all. And this wasn't simply a bit of stinginess. He absolutely loathed spending. There were no great sets of games, no big parties and generally no fun. Justinian and Tiberius Constantine had spent wads of cash on fun, but this emperor was always away fighting and he didn't let his people have what they wanted. He also cut the rations of the soldiers to save money. In the early 600s, Morris made two decisions which were to end in disaster for him. Both of them were based on not wanting to spend money and both were economically sound but politically suicidal. The Avars had captured 12,000 soldiers and were demanding payment of a ransom. They wanted gold and in return they would let the captives go. Morris didn't want to part with the cash and said no. Then the troops stationed on the Danube frontier wanted to go home for the winter, as they always had. This cost quite a bit as they had to travel a long way and needed supplies. Morris didn't want to part with the cash and said no. Morris was a good emperor and always tried to do what was right for his people. He most certainly didn't deserve what was about to happen to him. He simply had a blind spot when it came to financial decision making. He just didn't like spending, even when he probably should have done, and he didn't seem to realise just how unpopular these decisions were likely to be. Poor old Morris, though, was about to find out. It was the last decision that did for him. As soon as the troops realised they were not going home for the winter, they revolted. The Danube frontier was cold and windy. The troops wanted to see their wives and children and be warm at home. They revolted, and they revolted big. Their commander pleaded with them, but they were not going to listen. It probably didn't help things that the commander was the emperor's brother Peter. Peter fled for his life. Instead, the rebellious men proclaimed as their leader a low-ranking officer by the name of Phocas. Peter just about escaped with his life and fled back to Constantinople with a message from the rebels. There was no question of Phocas becoming emperor, obviously, but they would no longer put up with stingy old Morris. They demanded that either the emperor's eldest son Theodosius or the young man's father-in-law Germanus be made emperor. 
Had Morris stepped down and agreed to this, he probably would have been okay, but he didn't. He had them both accused of treason. His son was flogged, and Germanus fled to the Hagia Sophia. Focus began to march on the capital. Morris appealed to the Blues and the Greens for support, but found that only the Blues were definitely with him, so he fled with his wife Constantina and their eight children to Asia Minor. Theodosius and the Praetorian Prefect of the East, Constantine Lardes, went to Persia to seek help from Cosros. Cosros owed Morris a favour, since Morris had helped him win the Persian throne. Focus continued to march on the capital. Germanus made his bid for the throne, but the Greens, amazingly, had decided to support somebody else. Flavius Focus was so unimportant that nobody knows anything about where he was born or what he did before the year 600. By 602, he was Emperor of the Roman Empire. We don't know much about his history, but we do know how he behaved after he became Emperor and what he looked like. He was apparently ugly, with tangled red hair and thick eyebrows that met in the middle of his head. He had a huge scar on his face that became more and more red and hideous as he became more and more angry, and Focus was quite often angry. It said, though, that he was not as nice as he looked. No, he may have looked horrible, but he was much, much more horrible inside. He was crowned in Constantinople in 602 in a magnificent ceremony. The Greens cheered, but the Blues shouted at him, Remember, Morris is not dead. Remember, Morris is not dead. Focus probably hadn't forgotten this, but he acted immediately. He sent some troops to chase down the fleeing emperor and his family. When the troops caught up with them, Morris made no attempt to escape. He was beaten, he knew he was beaten, and there wasn't much point in pretending he wasn't beaten. He gave himself up and sent a note to his eldest son Theodosius, telling him not to bother to go to Persia. As he was about to be killed, he simply said, You are fair, O Lord, and your judgments are fair. He was beheaded, as were all five of his sons who were with him. The six heads were put on spikes and sent back to Constantinople for the new emperor to view. Focus was very pleased. Morris was killed on the 14th of August 602. He was 62 years old and had ruled the empire very well for 20 years. If he had just been prepared to spend a bit more money on comforts and fun, he may have lasted a lot longer. Those who were pleased to see the back of Morris were in for a shock. Those who were pleased to see the back of Morris were about to wish they could bring him back to life. In fact, those who were pleased to see the back of Morris and everyone else in the empire were about to live through a reign of terror not seen for 400 years. Of all the emperors since Caracalla, until the accession of the aptly named Andronicus the Terrible, only Focus would be a rival in cruelty. It would be many, many years before anyone else even nearly so brutal and horrible would come to the throne. At first, the accession of Focus was greeted enthusiastically. He reduced taxes which his miserly predecessor had increased, obviously a popular move. His reign, though, was a disaster, both internally and externally. The deaths of Morris and his sons were only the beginning. First, the new emperor executed anyone who had been very close to the old emperor. Bye-bye, Constantine Lardis. Bye-bye, Peter. Bye-bye, Theodosius. Bye-bye, quite a few others. Constantina and her daughters were sent to a nunnery. Next, he executed everyone who was even a bit close to the old emperor. Bye-bye, many hundreds of people. King Cosros of Persia found out what had happened and was determined to act. Morris had been his friend, and Cosros knew that he wouldn't be king of Persia now if Morris hadn't helped him. He was going to make this nasty, ugly villain pay for his many murders. In 603, he raised a huge, very scary army and marched on the empire. 
Unfortunately, the Empire only had one decent general left, and that general was a man called Narses. And no, he wasn't related to Justinian's Narses. Narses would have sprung into action for Morris, but he wasn't going to do anything for Focus. He refused to budge, and instead took the city of Edessa and sent the message to Cosrose asking for help. The two men met and began to plan a rebellion. This, of course, was not an action likely to make the new emperor happy. Focus was hopping mad. His scar was very red. He had been busy fighting the Avars, but he made a quick and expensive peace and went back to the capital. He wrote to Narses guaranteeing the general would be safe if he came back to Constantinople for talks. Narses did not really want to put the empire in danger, so he agreed and made his way to the city. If Focus had been sensible, he may have worked things out. If he had been merciful, he may have shown that he could be a good leader. If Focus had been somebody else, the situation may have been saved. But Focus was Focus. As soon as Narses reached Constantinople, he was grabbed and set on fire. This horrible killing was also a stupid killing. If Focus had made an agreement with Narses, perhaps he could have convinced his people that he could lead well. But he didn't. And along with that, he had killed the Empire's best general. There were only two other generals who were any good at all, and one of them died after a battle, and the other was arrested for treason and thrown into prison. It was soon clear to the people of the Empire that their new emperor had a very violent temper. He was also often drunk and ate too much. Focus was made angry by resistance, fear, and anything else that could possibly annoy him, and he probably hated cuddly bunnies too. Over the next four years, the Persians overran the Eastern Empire, taking Armenia, most of Syria, Cappadocia, and more. While the army was busy in the east, the Slavs and Avars invaded and completely overtook the Balkans. In Italy, the Lombards continued to take much of the old home province, and the Visigoths took what was left of Imperial Spain. Focus then decided that the Jews were part of the problem. The Jews mainly lived in the eastern provinces and had been loyal subjects of the empire for hundreds of years, and just where Focus needed friends, he made enemies. He began a persecution and tried to force the Jews to convert to Christianity. Not surprisingly, the Jews of Antioch rose in revolt and killed the patriarch of the city, along with many other citizens. The fighting was bloody, and a lot of people were murdered or executed on both sides. Many citizens, both Christians and Jews, ran to Persia for safety. Eventually, the Persians strode in and took Jerusalem, and with it the true cross, the Christians' most sacred relic. Plots against the emperor were common, but the plotters were usually too stupid not to get caught, and a flurry of executions began. Constantina and her three daughters were dragged from the nunnery and beheaded at Chalcedon. Germanus was executed. The Greens and Blues began rioting in the streets and everywhere there was chaos. Many of their leaders were executed too. Focus then introduced the Empire to torture. Before his reign, deliberately hurting people in order to get information from them was virtually unknown, but Focus made a lot of use of it. It was said he enjoyed torturing people himself and that he was one of the best torturers in the Empire. The only person who thought well of Focus was the Pope. He was pleased that Morris was gone, and pretty much anyone else would have been better. A dead donkey on the throne in Constantinople would have been more popular than Morris in Rome. Focus gave the Pantheon to Pope Boniface IV for use as a church, and stepped in to restore a supporter of the Pope, a man called Smargadus. Focus gave the Pantheon to Pope Boniface IV for use as a church and stepped in to restore a supporter of the Pope, a man called Smaragdus, to the Exarchate of Ravenna. 
In gratitude, Smaragdus erected in the Roman Forum a golden statue on top of a new column, the Column of Focus. This was the last great imperial column ever built in Rome, and it's still there today, although the statue is long gone. There is no point in giving the names and details of all of the later victims of the reign of Focus. People had their tongues torn out, their eyes were stabbed with knives and other pointy things, their hands and feet were cut off, they were whipped until they died, they were burned, they were shot with arrows. The Hippodrome was a sea of heads. There just didn't seem to be enough spikes to put them all on. By 608, there was enough bad feeling for stirrings of rebellion. There was enough discontent, there was enough fear. All that was required was a leader. But was there anyone in the Empire brave enough to act? And next time, we'll find out if there was. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.